0: This is what's called a stepped wedge cluster randomised control trial.
1: It's actually about making every day really meaningful and purposeful.
0: Even conventional
1: or complementary medicines weren't working for them. Something is going on in the kinds of spaces that we are building. They kept trying to find something else. Think. Think Health on 2 ser 107.3.
2: Hi, welcome to the show. I'm Ellen Lee Beta. Today we take a moment to consider mindfulness.
3: Think about times you're just in the moment. You know when you just those those moments where you, you're watching the sun go down or you're just walking down the street and for no apparent reason suddenly you're just there and everything's really radiant and alive. That's that's mindfulness.
2: And how to reduce your risk of bowel cancer. Midwives have long been recognised as vital to reducing maternal and infant death rates across the world. But who is helping the midwives to be midwives? The State of the World's Midwifery Report in 2011 and 2014 has recognised three key pillars needed to establish and support the global midwifery workforce. These pillars are education, regulation and association. New research has looked at whether access to these pillars has changed since the original 2011 report and the results are
4: mostly positive.
2: Caroline Homer, Professor of Midwifery at the University of Technology, Sydney, explains.
4: Well, the State of the World's Midwifery report in 2014 was really an interesting um, activity and an interesting research project. We looked at 73 of the lowest to middle income countries in the world and we examined a whole range of issues including how midwives were educated, how they were regulated, how they were professionally supported, the numbers of midwives in all those countries and the numbers of other maternity workers as well, obstetricians, nurses, community health workers. We had uh, done a State of the World Windwifery report in 2011 in about 50 countries. So some of many of those countries were the same and then we had um, about 20 extra countries. What countries are we talking about here? So we're talking about what we call uh, the Countdown countries. So Countdown is a big global initiative looking at the lower to middle income countries, particularly the lowest income countries. So many countries in Africa, Uh, Many countries in our region, Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands, for example, countries um, in the Southern Americas, um, and and a lot of small island countries. So just as an example, in in our region, Bangladesh, India, Indonesia, uh, Myanmar, Nepal, Cambodia, China, Laos. So these are the countries that have the highest burden of maternal deaths and newborn deaths. So we know that midwives save lives. So if we think about where should the effort be made globally, of course it should be made in all countries, but where 99% of women die are in these countries.
2: So let's start with education. How has education changed from 2011 to 2014?
4: Around the countries there's been huge improvements in education. So I think from 2011 there was... A diversity of education programs, length of training, the requirements within the programs, and the international education standards had only really just started to be applied. What we saw in 2014 was a, a vast improvement in many countries. Uh, they'd really adopted the International Confederation of Midwives standards for education. And there was real evidence of trying to improve the quality of midwifery education. We know now from a lot of research that quantity isn't enough. It's not enough to just have more of the workforce, more midwives, more doctors, more nurses. You actually have to have quality. And the way to get quality is to ensure they're educated properly. So there were some very encouraging parts of this study that showed that significant improvements had been made. But there are also some areas of concern and huge discrepancies across the countries and across the regions. Lots of inconsistency in how midwifery education plays out across the world.
2: The education standards that you mentioned for the
4: International Confederation of Midwives, what are those standards? ICM sets out some very extensive standards. Uh, they cover things like the length of the midwifery program. So the ICM standards say that if it's a, um, a what's known as a direct entry program, which means you're not a nurse before you come in, it should be a minimum of three years. And if it is a program subsequent to nursing, it should be a minimum of 18 months. Uh, it also covers things like how the teachers should be educated and supported, how the faculty should be developed and built, what resources students should have access to, uh, how assessment should occur. So very similar to many countries have accreditation standards for their education programs. These are the international ones for midwives. The the challenging part is uh, resourcing countries and supporting countries to meet those standards and not every country recognises midwives in the same way. So if you're in a country that doesn't actually recognise that midwives are a separate discipline, you're going to find it very hard to even think that you need standards, let alone meet them.
2: You mentioned earlier that midwives need to, they need to be quality midwives, not just the quantity of the course. Is that doing things like
4: being part of a certain amount of supervised births? That's right. The tricky bit is we actually don't know what the magic number is. So it's very hard to do research to work out what's the magic number of births that a midwife should attend so that she ends up, he or she ends up being a quality, skilled and safe midwife. So in Australia at the moment, we've got new standards that say a minimum of 30 normal births. We know across the world that varies. In some countries, it's 40. In this research that we did in the 73 lower to middle income countries, it varied from zero to 100. And the median was in the 30s to 40s, depending on the region. So enormous differences around the world of the number of births you need to attend. So So while we don't know what the magic number is, most of us would believe it's more than zero um, and that you need a certain number of births to attend to experience the diversity of women's birthing. So when it all goes well, when there are some challenges, when there's some complexities, when there are some emergencies. So students need to see enough births to see enough of that diversity.
2: Caroline, you alluded to this earlier, the importance of regulation in midwifery, how many of the countries actually recognise midwifery
4: as a profession? So in this study of the 73 countries, fewer than half of the countries had legislation recognising midwifery as an autonomous regulated profession. So 52% of countries had no regulation acknowledging that midwifery was a separate profession needing separate regulations, separate education standards. And that has huge implications for the safety of the public, essentially, because that's the purpose of regulation, is to protect the public, to ensure that people receiving care from a person who calls themselves a midwife is receiving the best possible care. But if you don't regulate for that person you don't know what they're providing essentially.
2: The third pillar is association. How is that different from regulation?
4: So association is the sort of professional support that goes alongside midwives. And in many countries actually, the there are professional associations for midwives. So in our country we have the Australian College of Midwives and in other countries there is a college or an association. These are different to the regulators in most places. So in many countries there's a council or a regulatory board that does the regulatory part of ticking people off, putting them on a register, checking that they meet the requirements for re-registration each year. Associations provide broader level support to midwives. They're involved in advocacy, they work with government to make sure that women get the best care, They uh, provide ongoing education, uh, continuing professional development opportunities, and they speak for midwives at local, national and international meetings. So it's it's an advocacy and a support role rather than a regulatory role. And we we do try to keep them separate in, in all countries because they are different and they're providing a different service. And how many of these countries have an
2: association for midwives?
4: Almost all of them had some sort of an association or they had some sort of group of people, midwives, who saw themselves as providing this level of professional support. And sometimes it's as part of a nursing association. So small countries in our region have very small numbers of midwives. So there's no logic in having a separate midwifery association. So they'll often have a special interest group that's part of the nursing association. There are some countries around the world that have more than one midwifery association, particularly in these countries that we saw, there might be two or three different groups who were providing that sort of level of support. What's the impact of this variability across countries for midwives? Uh, There's a number of impacts, I guess. One is that it's hard to know what a midwife is in a different country. So a midwife is not a midwife is not a midwife because they're going to look different across different countries if they're educated, regulated and supported differently. It also has implications for migration we are a globalised world and people move and so when you want to move from one country to another your qualifications may or may not be recognised because the country that you came from may or may not have education and regulation that's to a global standard so it puts real difficulties amongst people who migrate or people who move and sometimes people migrate not of their own choice as as we see around the world now so uh, it it makes it difficult for the regulator in the accepting country to understand who that person is and what they might have had in terms of their education, and it makes it really hard for the person moving. It's their their livelihood now can't be practised because they can't be recognised in their other country.
2: Midwives, as you said earlier, they do save lives of mothers and babies. Is there a recognition or gaining even more recognition in these countdown countries of the importance of midwives?
4: Yes, I think the the importance of midwives is really now being recognised. I think it has been quite a long journey and the work that we've done around the State of the World's midwifery report and the Lancet series on midwifery has really started to provide the evidence as to why midwives make a difference. And in lots of countries now, there are incredibly impressive efforts to further professionalise midwives, further to ensure that they are safe, regulated and well educated and that they can make a difference. So I I do feel we're on a sort of a wave of of improvements in particularly in these low to middle income countries. Caroline Homer, Professor of Midwifery at the
2: University of Technology Sydney, ending that story.
1: Think Health on 2SER 107.3
2: Let's try something different. Stop thinking about the future. Stop thinking about the past. Just exist in this moment, right now. Harder than it sounds, but that's the premise behind mindfulness, a psychological craze that's gaining traction around the world. Mindfulness is now working its way into higher education. In fact, Melbourne's Monash University is looking to incorporate it into their entire curriculum. Imagine signing up for an IT degree and finding yourself in a meditation lecture. Here in Sydney, the University of Technology Sydney could be next in line. Producer Sam King spoke with Dr Richard Chambers, a clinical psychologist from Monash, who's leading the push for mindfulness in universities.
3: So mindfulness is about being in the present moment. So if we engage our attention in the senses and pay attention to what's actually happening in the moment, that's that's being mindful. And so mindfulness meditation is a series of attention training practices where we focus, let's say, on the body or what we can hear or something that's happening in the senses and train our attention to be in the present moment. So, you know, broadly speaking, you could include, you know, if you repeat a word over and over again in your head and focus your attention on that, that's a mantra meditation. Or you could include yoga, I guess, focusing the attention on the body and the breath. There is a lot of science behind
0: what goes on uh, in the I guess mindfulness brain. How does it work neurologically speaking?
3: So what we know is if we activate a brain region it forms new synapses, new connections. that's neuroplasticity 101. So with mindfulness we start to activate regions like the prefrontal cortex, hippocampus insula as well but I'll focus on the prefrontal cortex, just behind your forehead. and that's what's that's a part of the brain that's responsible for the executive functioning attention regulation Mm -hmm. uh, thinking reasoning planning short-term memory inhibiting impulses managing emotions self-awareness so we activate the prefrontal cortex and strengthen it so it's like building a mindful muscle Mm -hmm. so when we practice mindfulness in any way if we're just paying attention to what's happening in the present moment but particularly if we sit and do periods of mindfulness meditation, you get that massed practice effect, so you see significant growth. While it is, in
0: essence, a a psychological technique, drawn as it is from religion, but it's still a psychological technique, it's also a fairly organized movement. Uh, You've got international programs like uh, the Mindfulness in Schools Project, uh, the Mindfulness Initiative, and in the UK there's even a political body, the all-party parliamentary group on mindfulness. So why do you think there's such an organized push going on around the world?
3: A few things have happened. First of all, there's a a huge body of evidence now showing that it's very effective for improving mental health but also improving performance, communication, making people act more ethically. So this body of research is getting harder and harder to ignore, plus the neuroscience around it. You can just literally see, like like we could in Catalyst, you can see the changes happening in the brain. So people who were once skeptical are now becoming at least interested, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, if, if not quite enthusiastic about mindfulness. And at the same time, of course, you know, you're seeing faster pace of life, increasing pressures, financial crisis, impact of digital technology making us more and more distracted. And at the same time, you know, this is a wisdom tradition that's actually just been drawn from other wisdom traditions. And so people, in, I think, intuitively recognise there's something valuable in this, above and beyond the benefits for mental health and productivity. Mm-hmm. There's something, I mean, think about times you're just in the moment. You know, when you just, those those moments where you, you're watching the sun go down, or you're with your partner, or you're just walking down the street and for no apparent reason, suddenly you're just there and everything's really radiant and alive. That's that's mindfulness so at its heart, you know, and, and people just recognise intuitively that that's a very valuable experience. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, I want to move now to the idea of, of bringing mindfulness into schools. I'm noticing that this, uh, you know, this, this whole idea is of particular interest to the groups that I mentioned earlier. And there's a good argument that it does work and it helps students concentrate. Uh, mindfulness programs have been available at Monash for about 30 years, as I understand. What kind of results are you seeing? That?
3: So yeah, we've had mindfulness embedded more or less in the medical school for about 27 years. And one of my colleagues, Craig Hassard, has been there, you know, really just pioneering mindfulness for about the last 30 years. And we've evaluated it formally twice, and it's a, great, it's a great program in a way because the medical students, uh, they have to learn it. They have to learn the theory, they have to learn the research because they get examined on it. And what we found is about 90.5% of them, this is a 2009 study, we did 90.5, about 90%, once they've learned about the research and the benefits for their mental health, for their well-being, for their academic performance, but also, you know, for being a, a good doctor, mm-hmm. they start to personally apply it in some way. So there's an openness that's there. And so now we've got, it, we've got about 14 different faculties or units that have some embedded mindfulness and that's the vision to roll it out university-wide. Yeah, absolutely.
0: I'm wondering, what about students who aren't interested at all in mindfulness? Like, is it, is it an opt-out or is it just choose a different university?
3: Uh, That's a really good question actually. So what we have is we we have elective programs available to students but as we pioneer this curriculum based model and of course some students land in first year IT and they're getting taught mindfulness. Now we present the evidence, we present it in an evidence based way, a practical way, we make it relevant for them. Of course you can't force anyone to meditate or practice it but they at least are expected to understand what what it is. Mm. And so we do get a little bit of pushback from some of the students who don't quite get it, but the vast majority by the end of you know a six week training in their tutorials mm. and a couple of lectures on it will at least be open to the idea. Okay, uh, so this seminar today was all about embedding
0: mindfulness in the curriculum at UTS as it is at Monash. Uh, How would that affect students in a practical way?
3: To embed it in the curriculum, would, if you look at the evidence, it would mean that, that students would have They'd be able to manage stress better. They'd be more productive because like I said, you rewire the brain, key learning areas, prefrontal cortex, hippocampus, insular, key learning areas so that we, we know that they become better students. And There's a lot of research, little bits of meditation or sustained mindfulness training, improving academic outcomes. So you'll see students who perform better and who are less stressed. Less stress, better grades. Mm. Really makes a lot of sense in an academic context.
0: You're obviously very passionate about
3: the whole idea behind mindfulness. Do you get much professional kickback in the psychology circles? Uh, over, I've been working with mindfulness for about seventeen years, and I've noticed that a few older school medical practitioners, psychiatrists, etc., have been a bit slow to sort of recognise the value of mindfulness. In the last two years or so, there's been this sort of. Uh, it's sometimes called the, the dark night of the soul phenomenon. You know, obviously sometimes people practice mindfulness and they have what are called adverse effects or adverse events. They just get in touch with some anxiety that they're not ready equipped to deal with yet, or people who are already at risk for psychosis perhaps might precipitate a psychotic episode. How that, common is that? It's very rare. If you look yeah. at the literature, it's very rare. It often happens on long retreats where people are spending 10 days on a silent retreat, meditating all day long. Yeah often against the recommendation of their doctor or the retreat organisers. Every now and then you hear this story about someone that does like five minutes of meditation and just runs into something that just freaks them out and it takes ages for them to recover from. That's extremely rare. And you know they're getting in touch with something that they've been avoiding anyway. So you'd have to, I think in my mind it's it's unclear whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. But, like I said, that, that's very rare. You look at some of the evidence and a lot of these adverse effects are happening before retreats start, that kind of thing. So. What I like about that is it's nuancing the literature a little bit because people have just been yay mindfulness for quite a long time and so it's nice to see that people are saying, hang on, we know mindfulness is good, it just makes sense intuitively and the evidence backs it up, but who does it work with and when and in what situation might want to be a little bit careful and so we're just starting to get a little bit more nuanced and intelligent, I guess you'd say, about our approach and that's a good thing.
2: Dr Richard Chambers speaking to Sam King about plans to introduce mindfulness to higher education. You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Online at 2SER.com or on your favourite podcast app. Bowel cancer is Australia's second biggest cancer killer after lung cancer, Yet 90% of bowel cancer cases can be treated successfully if found early. The problem is, nobody really wants to talk about what happens when things go wrong in the bathroom. June is Bowel Cancer Awareness Month, and Bowel Cancer Australia is encouraging Aussies to know the symptoms and risk factors of bowel cancer. Claire Ania is the National Community Engagement Manager at Bowel Cancer Australia. She spoke to Nina Koppel
1: bowel cancer is otherwise known as colorectal cancer. So that's cancer of the colon or the large intestine and the rectum. Uh, Bowel cancer is a malignant growth that develops most commonly in the lining of the large bowel. And most bowel cancers develop from tiny benign growths called polyps. So one of the reasons bowel cancer is called one of the most preventable cancers is because if you can catch those polyps and remove them before they have a chance to turn into a bowel cancer, you are able to prevent bowel cancer. Who is most likely to be diagnosed? Uh, Bowel cancer affects men and women almost equally. Around 15,000 Australians each year are diagnosed with bowel cancer and it is more common in people aged over 50 years of age. However, bowel cancer is increasing in younger people and around a 1,000 Australians in their 20s, 30s and 40s are diagnosed with bowel cancer each year. So bowel cancer is definitely something that men and women of all ages need to be aware of and younger people shouldn't be told that they're too young to have bowel cancer because it can affect younger people as well. Do we know why there's that increase in younger people? They don't know exactly why Uh, It is increasing in younger people. There are a few different reasons that they're surmising could be the case, particularly in relation to diet and lifestyle factors. And they do also know that there can be some genetic differences with the bowel cancer tumours in younger people that can cause them to be more aggressive, but there isn't any solid evidence either way at the moment. So they're doing more research to find out why that can be the case and, and how they can help to reverse that increase. You've recently mapped out the geography of bowel cancer. So where is it and what are the areas that are most affected? So a couple of years ago, Bowel Cancer Australia developed a resource called the Bowel Cancer Atlas of Australia. And each year we update that information with the latest statistics and information. And it includes information on things like bowel cancer deaths and risk factors in local communities. And this year, we've also added information about colonoscopy rates and National Bowel Cancer Screening Program participation rates and lots of other things. Uh, The aim of the atlas is to provide local communities with areas that they can focus attention on when it comes to health behaviours that could be improved to help reduce the bowel cancer risk in their local communities. And if we have a look at the, the information in the atlas that relates to New South Wales, you can see that over the five-year period of 2009 to 2013, uh, bowel cancer claimed the lives of 3,065 men and women across New South Wales, and the highest death rate was in a place called Lachlan. Metropolitan Sydney had a slightly lower mortality rate uh, than regional New South Wales, and there are a few areas that the atlas looked at when it came to uh, risk factors for bowel cancer as well, so the local government areas in Sydney's north performed really well. Coringai uh, had the lowest rates of smoking and alcohol consumption. Um, across New South Wales, the Sydney lower North Shore and Blue Mountains had the lowest rates of type 2 diabetes which is a risk factor for bowel cancer. And then it also had a look at Central and Darling uh, region and Broken Hill and they had the highest rates of smoking and alcohol consumption. And and they're all risk factors for bowel cancer, so what the Atlas is looking to do is to highlight the areas in all the local communities so that each local community can uh, focus on how they can improve those uh, risk factors in their area and hopefully reduce the rates of bowel cancer. What are some of the things that people can do to kind of prevent getting bowel cancer during their life? So it's estimated that changes in diet and physical activity can reduce the incidence of bowel cancer by up to 75%, which is actually quite a large amount. And some of the things that people can do, the simple things they can do every day to help to reduce their bowel cancer risk can be things like aiming to be physically active. So that doesn't mean you need to be running a marathon or pumping it out at the gym every day. It just means 30 to 60 minutes of physical activity each day can help to reduce your bowel cancer risk. What you eat can help as well. So foods containing dietary fibre, yummy fruits and vegetables with a lot of plant-based fibre can help to reduce your risk. Uh, Red meat and processed meat can be actually increasing your bowel cancer risk. So limiting the amount of red meat that you eat and avoiding processed meat can help. Uh, Limiting the amount of alcoholic beverages that you drink, uh, watching what what you weigh and quitting smoking can all help to reduce your bowel cancer risk as well.
2: Claire Ania from Bowel Cancer Australia speaking to Nina Kopal. Don't forget, if you'd like to find out more about anything you heard today, you can visit us at 2scr.com forward slash thinkhealth. We're also available on demand. Just search for Think Health in your favourite podcast app please remember that journalists are not doctors. If we've made you ask questions, go and see a GP. This show is produced with the support of the University of Technology, Sydney, Faculty of Health. I'm Ellen Lee Bader. See you next week for more in health research and news.